0: We're in Zechariah chapter 6. I chose that uh, hymn by Reverend Eric Alexander as it um, is a wonderful uh, poetic setting of both offices that Christ, two of the offices that Christ executes, that of priest and king. And Zechariah 6 is all about Jesus, the priest-king. Both king and priest, he ever lives. Our royal priest now intercedes and understands our deepest needs. That's what Zechariah points us to as well as we consider this final vision in um, the first half of the the prophet. The uh, night visions, the seven night visions come to a close. Um, Morning is about to, to break and the prophet shall awake. And we are going to uh, take a pause then from this series in the summer. It's a good place to stop, just so you know where we're headed. And next week, we're going to uh, begin a summer-long series in the evening services, um, looking at the Lord's Prayer and uh, what uh, what it means to learn how to pray and what that prayer teaches us about who this God is to whom we pray um, and what it means to commune with him. So I'm looking forward to digging into that with you this summer, and then we'll return to the second half of Zechariah in the fall. But for now, Zechariah chapter 6. This is the word of God. Again, I lifted my eyes, that is Zechariah, lifted his eyes, and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains. And the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven, after presenting themselves before the Lord of the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes towards the north country, and the white ones go after them, and the dappled ones go toward the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and to patrol the earth, and he said, Go, patrol the earth. And so they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, Behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. And the word of the Lord came to me. Take from the exiles Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from this place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helem, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. The grass withers, the flower fades, this is the word of our Lord, it endures forever. A tennis star and two-time Wimbledon uh, Wimbledon champion, Boris Becker, once remarked that it's the old song of movie stars and pop stars who commit suicide, that they have everything and yet they are so unhappy. And he made this comment... uh, in an interview discussing his own uh, suicidal attempts after reaching the height of fame and success in his uh, world of, of athletics. Um, incidentally, currently, if you were to Google Boris Becker, you would find out that he is hoping to be released from prison by Christmas, where he's been for the last several years after filing for bankruptcy, but hiding several of his assets from the bankruptcy audit that came afterwards. Uh, Similarly, though, to that line from Becker, we have this famous line from author, multimillionaire Jack Higgins, who when asked what he would have liked to have known when he was a child, responded that when you get to the top, there's nothing there. I wish somebody told me, he said, that when I got to the top, there would be nothing there. Uh, you don't need to be successful in the ways these men were in, in worldly terms to still feel at times disillusioned or disappointed uh, with what the world offers. There's nothing wrong with money. Um, there's nothing wrong with even uh, being well-known, with being famous. And yet they, those things, fame and money, still do not uh, fill the void that we all have inside of us. And so we think of things like health and um, things like, good personality and charm and, and good looks or good grades, uh, things like having well-behaved children or a family that all gets along and, and keeps in touch with one another and does vacations together, uh, having a, a job that makes you f- feel fulfilled um, or or makes a lot of money for you and your family. These, again, are all good things, and yet even with them, have you never at times felt an emptiness? Have you felt that pull, that longing for something more? Have you ever been filled with such a sense of peace and happiness during the day, and then go and lay your head down on the pillow at night, and then start to think, yes, but if I could just have a little more peace and a little more happiness? If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world, wrote C.S. Lewis. And he captured the the plight of fallen humanity so well. That we have desires that even the best things in this world don't meet. And that's because we're made for another world entirely. This is the lesson that Israel's learning in their post-exilic days when Zechariah's ministering. In one sense... Uh, they should have been elated, right? What what did they want? They wanted to be back home, and that's where they are now. They're back home. What what did they put their hopes in? They put it in the temple, and now it's rebuilt. And yet they still find that they're dissatisfied. They're disillusioned. I mean, the temple isn't all that, really, as they look at it. And even though they're back in the land, it's not as pretty as it once was, and they don't feel as secure as they once did. Especially as there's not a king reigning on the throne. And so, what's the solution? The solution is the work that God will accomplish in the next world, not in their lifetime, not in the lifetime of their descendants, but in a different world entirely which God grants them access to through faith in his Messiah. And that's the solution to our problem as well. It's the work that God is doing in the next world. We must put our hopes and our faith in that which shall come to pass. Did you notice that at the conclusion of our chapter in verse 16? And this shall come to pass. That's what our hope must be in. In what shall come to pass, not in what is passing away. Not what is fading away. And so we want to set our hope upon these things along with Israel as we examine this chapter in Zechariah. Which teaches us so clearly uh, first of God's coming conquest, and then second, of God's coming king, and then even finally we'll consider what it means to participate in God's coming kingdom. But first, a promise of God's coming conquest, his promised victory. We see that in verses 1 through 8. This is actually the the final of the night visions, And we're going to handle it quite briefly. The remainder of chapter 6 is not one of the visions. It acts as a sort of hinge between that first portion of the book of Zechariah and the second. But I felt like it was especially apt to consider it tonight because it fills in a lot of what the visions pointed to and it helps us understand what they mean. And uh, in particular, its message has the most significance when we consider it in combination with the final vision. Uh, Verses 1 through 8. But that's why we're taking the whole chapter as one tonight. But this vision, quite simply, is the promise that God one day will conquer and defeat all of his enemies everywhere. God will one day conquer and defeat all of his enemies everywhere. There's no, there's not a a sphere of the world that will remain outside of his reigning influence. There won't be a, a, a people group that will escape judgment And his subjugation, Uh, that's the idea of being sent to the four winds, the four corners of the world, north, east, west, south. They go everywhere that the compass points. God sends his uh, warriors. You may recall that this imagery of the different colored horses is reminiscent of the very first vision that we considered in chapter 1. When uh, Zechariah encountered these riders on horses Uh, who came to uh, survey the peoples of the earth on behalf of God. Chapter 1 and verse 11, we have patrolled the earth. This is their report after patrolling the earth. We have patrolled the earth and behold, all the earth remains at rest. And we talked about how that's actually discouraging news because translation, the whole earth remains at rest, is we have gone and we've surveyed the whole world, all the enemies of God, and they're having a great time. The word for rest means they are undisturbed. Well, the, this patrol in chapter 6 is a little different, because now it's not just men on horses. Those horses are hitched to chariots, and that's a symbol of war. So now it's not just surveying, but it's, it's conquest. The, the armies of heaven have finally been released to go out to um, bring the world into submission to the maker of the world, Yahweh himself. And they are sent, as we've mentioned, to the four winds of the earth, every corner of the globe, but what would have particularly caused the ears of Zechariah's audience to perk up is is the announcement at the conclusion of the vision, verse eight, from the the um, interpreting angel, the, the angel who's been helping Zechariah along, there is this news that there has been riders sent to the north, chariots sent to the north country. And they have secured victory. This is the first time in, in all of the discourse that this angel and Zechariah have shared that the angel actually shouts something. He cries out. It's a victory cry. What is the victory cry? Behold, those who go to the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. What's the north country? To an Israelite, to hear about the north is to hear about Babylon. It's to hear about exile, that place of curse. This is where, in the previous vision, the basket with the woman in it, with the, the stork-like women come, and they take that basket away to the Valley of Shinar in the north country. It's a place of wickedness, evil, that realm outside of God's covenant blessing. That's where victory has been secured. When you hear north in Old Testament language, oftentimes... It's referring to Babylon. Je- Jeremiah 4, 6. Raise a standard toward Zion. Flee for safety. Stay not, for I bring disaster from the north and great destru- destruction from the north. And yet now, behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. In Zechariah 1, it was the enemies of God who were at rest, who were undisturbed. And now, it's the very spirit of God that is at rest in the north country. The enemy territory of wickedness and of evil is now a haven of rest. Shalom has been brought, has been secured, in the place that, that the people in Zechariah's day thought it could never come to. There's no way uh, that Babylon, a place like Babylon, could be brought into subjugation to the people of God, into God's plan. But Shalom has come Rest has come upon the place that God's people assumed it could never reach. Did you did you hear that? I'll say it again. That Shalom has come upon the place that God's people uh, assumed it could never reach. And I think that's important for us to hear because my assumption is that tonight you have, perhaps they're not voiced or outwardly expressed, but you have some inward assumptions about the ability of God to actually conquer and defeat all of his and your enemies. Or maybe not his ability to, but the reality that he actually would. Will he actually make all things new? Will he actually change our mourning into dancing? We need to repent of the sin of disbelief, the sin of doubt, the sin of hearing the reports of the news, reading the headlines, and assuming that there's no hope, of seeing the sin in the world and thinking that all is lost, or of seeing the sin in our own hearts and assuming there can never be change. Take heart, dear Christian. God's spirit will come to rest, even in the north country, even in the place that we least expect. And that victory cry of Zechariah is echoed elsewhere in Scripture, Isaiah 21, when God instructs the prophet to set himself as a watchman to declare to the nation whatever report he sees coming from the battle, uh, battlefield. And at last he shouts, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon! or what we read in Revelation 11:15 The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ This is our hope If we want to keep from despair and disillusionment we keep our eyes fixed forward on that promise of a coming conquest indeed that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Which is what the second portion of this chapter unpacks for us in such vivid detail. It tells us about the king of this coming kingdom. There will be a conquest, there will be a victory. The kingdoms of this world will be toppled over, and they will belong to Jesus. And we learn about Jesus from Zechariah chapter 6, verses 9 through 14. A picture of God's coming king. Secondly, tonight, a picture of God's coming king. So as I've mentioned, we're transitioning out of the vision phase. What we read in these verses is not a vision that Zechariah is given. These are instructions that he's been given of something that they're actually to do. um, Something, a a kind of ceremony they're meant to enact in Israel. Israel. The, he and the nation to witness. Uh, there was to be this coronation ceremony, and it was a symbol of the future king. There would be a resplendent crown, verse 11. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, who was the high priest. Uh, interesting, the, the crown that is made from gold and silver, from where? Well, if you read verse 10. Uh, It's taken from those who've returned from exile, who've arrived from Babylon and brought with them the gold and silver from Babylon. It's just, it reminds me of of the Exodus. You remember what happens as the Israelites are on their way out from Egypt and the Egyptians are standing, you know, out in the streets just watching this happen as this thousands and thousands of people who were enslaved to them now are leaving. And what do the Israelites do? They hold out their hand, right? And the Egyptians... Give them their jewels, give them their gold and silver, and thus they plundered the Egyptians. How God takes the things that that the world thinks are their best weapons against us, and he twists them around and he uses them for himself. Here he uses the gold and the silver from Babylon to create this crown that is placed on Joshua's head while Zechariah declares, Behold, the man, this is uh, verse uh, 12, Behold, the man whose name is the branch... For he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It's he who shall build the temple of the Lord and bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne, and there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. So this act, this coronation, is a way of embodying for Israel their hope in a future king who would be this branch and this builder. But it's not Joshua, even though they're putting it on Joshua's head. Uh, the people would have known Joshua isn't the branch. He isn't the builder that they're talking about. He's a stand-in for the real thing. Uh, he's pointing to the better Joshua, the better Yeshua, Jesus Christ. And so uh, the, the actions themselves even pointed away from people thinking that this was actually about Joshua. Because what happens right after the coronation? Isn't this very interesting? I'm not an expert in... in what happens in royal families and coronations but my guess is when you place the crown on the brow of the king or the queen who's taking the throne the next thing you do immediately isn't to take it back off of them and put it away but that's what happens in verse 14 and the crown shall be not upon Joshua's head but in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to and it lists these people who stand in as representatives of, especially those who've been saved from being in exile Helam, Tobijah, Jediah and hen or josiah the son of zephaniah the crown is taken off the diadem is placed in the temple and that means that every time people came to worship they would see a crown without a king and they would know though that because the crown's there it's a guarantee that a king is coming one day there will be a king and that crown will be placed on his brow and it will never be taken off and so they're their hope wasn't in the here and now. The here and now, well, that's just Wimbledon trophies and best-selling novels. It's vanity and it's emptiness. They looked at that crown and they remembered that their complete happiness was yet to come, but it was coming. Yet to come, but it's still coming. We have a phrase for this, don't we? When, uh, you know, we want to encourage people who don't have something right now, but if they work towards it, they will get it, we... Tell somebody, we say, keep your eyes on the prize. That's, that's what this action was for the nation. This was a means for Israel to keep their eyes on the prize, yet the prize was a crown, and the crown wasn't even their own. It, the crown was for the Messiah. There would be one who would bear royal honor, who would sit on that as of yet vacant throne, but until he comes... This is the instruction for the nation. Keep your eyes on the crown because the king is coming. And through the steps of this coronation, the nation learned three important things about the coming king. As I mentioned, this is a picture painted for us of the coming king. Three things we learned briefly. First, most surprisingly, it's that he would also be a priest. As we have noted, the one being crowned is Joshua, and he is the high priest. Priests were not crowned back then. This is not a normal event. Priests wore turbans. Kings wore crowns. But this priest is crowned. The king is the priest. And this is extremely instructive in our understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus is all about. What it actually means for him to, to rule and to reign. His kingship is defined and established by sacrifice. Before the right hand of the Father and before all the, the glory of heaven. His crown was, his throne was a cross and his crown was thorns. That's how he secured his title king, it was by dying for the sins of me, for the sins of you. His kingship is defined by sacrifice. Hebrews 1 3 ties together both the priestly and kingly offices of Christ. When the author writes this, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. After dealing with sins. It's in dealing with sin that Christ has established his throne, his rule in the kingdom of God's eternal and spiritual shalom, where the, the spirit of God is at rest, even in enemy territory. That comes because Christ took on our enemy at the cross and defeated him by dying. This king is a priest. The king also is the branch. That's the second thing. This is the second time we've heard that designation from, uh, from Zechariah pointing to Christ. We see it in Isaiah. We see it in Jeremiah as, as well. It's the image of a family tree. And when they heard branch, they thought David. They thought Davidic line. And there's a play on words here that you note in Verse 12. His name is the branch and he shall branch out from this place. Or his name is the shoot and he will shoot up from this place. He's going to grow from his place. The house of David was at a low ebb and the people doubted that anything glorious could ever come from it again. And yet the hope is here, the promise is here, that that family line has not been ultimately cut off. And even in, in, in this moment of, of, of uh, this, this low point in Davidic history, from that place... From this place of seeming nothingness, he will shoot up. He will branch out. The king will come. One scholar explains, no matter how depressed the state of the house of David, his power to be what the branch really should be will not be limited by time or circumstance. And so, though he grew up before the Lord like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground, that's Isaiah 53.2, that is, one whose origins in Nazareth of Galilee are a cause for suspicion and contempt, he still will spring up with power. And we know that to be true, don't we, of our Savior Jesus Christ. What good can come out of Nazareth of Galilee? And yet, this root out of dry ground comes. The branch, he will be the king that will receive the promise to David from Second Samuel. The covenant made with David in Second Samuel 7 was this. When your days are fulfilled, David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom for how long? Forever. Forever and ever. And this is part of the disillusionment, right, for Israel. They've come back, and they're in the city, and there's the temple, but there's no king. And in fact, they're thinking, are you related, to David? Are you related? Where is the line even? We're kind of getting, it seems like it's gotten lost, and it's, it's, it's become obscured. This is the promise, though. A branch will branch out. A root from dry ground. The shoot will shoot up. From David's line, it is from his line that God promises a throne that will stand forever. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Well, this leads to the third and the final thing we're told about this king. Not only is he the priest, not only is he the branch, he's the builder. He's the builder. It's repeated for us twice over, back to back. Verse 12, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Verse 13, it is he who shall build the temple of the Lord. Now the temple was already being built. So it couldn't be Zerubbabel's temple that is in mind. And so as the people thought of this coming king, they thought about all he would do. They learned that he's going to build a temple. And they're beginning to learn that maybe this temple that they're looking at, that they're working on, maybe even has been recently completed, that this temple isn't all that there is. Their hopes don't need to be in this temple at all. Remember, the the encouragement was to not be discouraged by the, the day of small things. Why? Well, because something bigger is coming. And Jesus himself says that. Matthew chapter 12, he says, something greater than the temple is here. What's he talking about? He's talking about himself. That's why we don't need to be those who despise the day of small things because there's a better and greater and bigger day coming. Jesus is the one who came and who tabernacled among his people. The one who made it so that we could be with God, not by going into a house, but by God coming to us, coming inside of us even. Paul writes, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells inside of you? And by his death and resurrection, he has built the kingdom of God. He has established the church, which we're told in Ephesians chapter 2, is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. But Christ, Jesus himself, is the cornerstone. He has secured our way into the new heavens and the new earth. And where's the temple there in the new heavens and new earth? Do you remember what John sees in Revelation 21? There is no temple. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Because we're going to actually be with God face to face. No mediator necessary. No mediation necessary. Immediately before the face of God in Jesus Christ. This is the temple that Jesus builds This is what our hopes must be placed in, not in anything that happens in this world. We'll just be disappointed. If you're disappointed tonight, it's because your hope is not in heaven. That longing that we all have inside of us, the desire for something more, the world that we need, it's a world that Jesus builds and then invites us into. And knowing tonight, friends, that it's something that Jesus does completely, he's done all the work, That means that we can be and we should be inspired and elated to join him in that work. And that's the final thing I want to consider with you very briefly. We've seen the promise of the coming conquest, the picture of the coming king, but now what it means to participate in that coming kingdom. And this is really just all coming from verse 15, our last verse. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord uh, this, is the, the, this is the language of the church. Those who are far off, you should be thinking, if you know your Bibles, you should be thinking Peter in Acts 2. And he says the promise for you and for your children and those who are near and those who are far off. The church is, as we even learned this morning in Acts 11 and last week in Acts 10, the church is for every corner of the world. As those chariots go out and they conquer and they make God's rest established in every corner of the world, that's not just by defeating God's enemies, sometimes it's by converting them. And so God swings open the doors of his kingdom that all can come in. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew. No, Jew and Gentile, Jew and Greek. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all people who call on the name of the Lord. And so those who are far off, this is the picture, shall come and and shall help build The temple. We come and we do ministry. We don't build the kingdom. We don't build the church. Jesus does. The priest king does. It's said so clearly to us two times, as I've said already. He repeats it two times. I'll repeat it two times. That's four times if you're following along. It says in verse 12, he shall build the temple of the Lord. Verse 13, it is he who shall build the temple of the Lord. But then what are we told in verse 15? We shall help to build the temple of the Lord. Now that's interesting, isn't it? What does that mean? Does God need our help? Does God need our service? Does he need our ministry? What's the idea here? Well, my son is at the age where right now helping with chores around the house is exciting to him, not dreadful. And so if I ever tell him I need to go and, and work on something around the house, he immediately replies, I can help. Now, I haven't asked, but he says, I can help. And so he does. And it brings a smile to my face and a sense of of purpose and value to him. But the lawn wouldn't get mowed, of course, unless I was standing behind him pushing. And those painting projects wouldn't get completed unless I was holding his wrist guiding every one of the strokes. Do you see the picture here? Jesus builds the temple. Jesus builds the kingdom. And yet it brings a smile to God's face. And it fills us with a sense of purpose and value. He condescends and says, and you can help too. He graciously permits us to join him in this work. And this work of the church in the world is meant to bring certainty to God's people on what he's doing and what he will do. According to what we read in Zechariah, this is the reason the people should believe his message. Look with me at verse 15. Those who are far, out, uh, far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Because those who are far off have come, and because they are coming to do the work of ministry, if I can put it in New Covenant language, because we see the church at work in the world, this is meant to give us certainty that God is at work behind that. That the Lord has sent me, Zechariah is saying. That this isn't just something I'm coming up with. This is part of God's divine plan, his divine decree. To see the church at work in the world is to know that the Lord is really at work. And then we're told if we obey his voice, if we believe in his word, well, we have confidence to know that these things will come to pass. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord, your God. Now, don't misunderstand these things do not come to pass on account of our belief or obedience. That is to say the kingdom of God is not contention upon your belief. You better believe so that God's will is done. That's, of course, not the idea. The kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, whether you believe it or not. And that's really important for you to understand if you don't believe it tonight. Because it's happening. And you have a very brief amount of time to get inside that kingdom before it's too late. But here's the idea. If you want some benefit from that coming kingdom and that coming king, if you want to experience what will come to pass and not watching it from afar unfold for the benefit of other people, then you have to believe. That's what that conditional clause means. This shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord. It will come to pass for you. If you believe. That's what it means, of course, to to obey the voice of the Lord our God. That is the most important thing that he requires from us. John reminds us, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. What's the work of God that you must do to get into the kingdom? Faith. That's the, that's the work. You get it? It's not a work at all. It's a gift. But you must believe. And to all who did receive him who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. So, dear friend, tonight, place your hope not in this passing world, but in that which will come to pass. Place your hope in nothing that this world offers you, but in what this world will become when Christ comes again. And until that moment, keep your eyes on the crown. Our Father, we ask that you would bless this word now to the edification of our hearts, souls, and minds, that we would believe, and in believing that we would be brought in, and in being brought in, we could be those who have been permitted to help to build the kingdom of the Lord. And we know that this is only because, ultimately, in Christ, you have built your temple. You have built your church. You have built your kingdom. We're so grateful for your gracious invitation to us. We're grateful for the completed work of our priest-king, who is enthroned on high because he sacrificed himself for us. Keep us looking to him, that we would find in him the fulfillment of all our hopes and desires. Amen.